Well, again, welcome to uh, Pastor's Corner Live. We're glad uh, you guys are here. If you don't know, that's Carson. That's our youngest, and we're excited about to him and the uh, student praise team. Uh, they're going to be with us next. Uh, they're going to be with us next Wednesday night. We've got a very special service lined up for you, so they'll be uh, leading us next Wednesday night. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be something very unique, uh, something that's going to be very interesting, so you want to be sure and be here. You look around maybe tonight, especially those of you that are on Facebook Live with us, and you're like, well, well, where is everybody? There's generally more people here. Well, tonight, the dads are over next door seeing whose pine car derby is the fastest. Uh, no, no. The Awana Pinewood Derby is next door, so they're having races over there. So that's where a lot of our families are right now, and so that's going to be a good time, and we're glad uh, that they were able to be there. But we're back in 1 Peter tonight, so turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Tonight we're continuing our journey through this book of the Bible, and we're trying to glean truths that will help us live better and not bitter when we go through persecution, when we go through suffering. We may not go through it like those that live in other countries or live in areas where Christianity really is persecuted, but we go through what we go through. And whatever that is, we want to make sure that we're prepared and that we're ready. And so last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 opened up by saying, therefore, and we talked about how that Peter is at the process when he says, therefore, he's looking all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 18, where he made this statement. He said, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then in verse one, therefore, as a result of, because of what we've just talked about, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose. And we talked about just like a fighter jet has to be armed with the munitions so that they're able to uh, take care of that attacking enemy that's coming after them. That's exactly the same verbiage that Peter's using in this passage of scripture. We have to be adamant about arming ourselves, about preparing ourselves for the enemy and the attacks that he's going to be waging. We know the Bible tells us that our enemy is like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. He's waiting for that person that will let their guard down. That's why Paul talks to us in the book of Ephesians about constantly putting on the full armor of God so that we'll be able to withstand the attacks. And so Peter's picking up on this here. He's saying we have to arm ourselves. We have to be prepared so that we'll be able to what our, what our uh, theme verse for this year says, so that we can lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So in the first six verses of First Peter chapter 4, we know that uh, Peter's giving us the, the ability or the tools or the teachings so that we can arm ourselves so we can survive when suffering comes our way. And now we come to verse 7. Now he's given us all of this instruction, this practical instruction last week. And now in verse 7 he says... The end of all things is near. That's kind of been the theme. If you listen to the songs that we've been doing and talking about tonight, that the, the, uh, the end of all things is near. Now, I've been a pastor now for some 20 plus years. And what I found when it comes to the end times, generally, there are two kinds of Christians. The one kind is what we'll call the end time junkies. OK, you can recognize them really quick. 
If you go to their house, they have books upon books upon books about revelation and about prophecy. And they have, they've, they've developed their own spreadsheets. They can tell you every angel, every dragon, every serpent, every trumpet, every bowl. Matter of fact, they have their favorite person that they listen to on the internet. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt in the next five years when it is that Jesus Christ is going to return. Now, the only problem is, is they've been studying this for about 25 years, and they know if a prophet makes a prediction and he's wrong, that they shouldn't follow him. So they just go find another great prophet that they can just start over with, and they are going to figure out when the Lord is returning again. They are end-time junkies. They just cannot get enough of it. The other Christians that you generally run into, where most people fall into, these are the end-time ostriches. They are so afraid that they are going to be identified with one of those junkies that they just kind of stick their head in the sand. They never want to be identified. You know, if they think, well, if I talk about end-time prophecies or I talk about the end times of the book of Revelation, people are going to group me with those people that wear the sandwich signs. You know, they stand on the street corner, turn or burn. You know, they think if I talk about it somehow, somebody is going to equate that to me. So what they do is they say, I'm just not going to worry about the end times. It's going to take care of itself. It's going to happen the way that it is. I'm just going to worry about the here and now. That's the only thing I can control. So just here and now, don't worry about the end times. I'm not going to discuss it. Well, I think Peter would want us to be somewhere in the middle. I don't think he would want us to be, you know, all strung out on on end time prophecy, but I don't think he would want us to ignore it either. And I say that because in chapter four and verse one, he says, arm yourself with the same purpose. In that passage, he's saying, arm yourself for the here. Arm yourself for the now. Arm yourself for the present time. That's what he's teaching us to do. But then right after he says that, then here in verse seven, he says, hey guys, the end time is near. So he's wanting us to find a balance in that. He's not wanting us just to concentrate on the here and now, but concentrate on the here and now with an eye toward the fact that the end is near. And as best as I can understand it, In this verse that we're going to kind of look at tonight, Peter is continuing this process of trying to motivate us. He's trying to help us understand. Remember last week we talked about this, this suffering, this equipping ourselves for the suffering. He gave us some tools to motivate us to not give up. He doesn't want us to become bitter. He doesn't want us to stop running with endurance the race that is set before us. He wants us to continue going forward. And so he's trying to motivate us and equip us so that we'll endure the suffering that we're probably going to uh, face because of our Christian faith. So here in verse 7, we find Peter giving us the ultimate motivation. He's given us the, 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 the top of the hill, if you will, the best possible way, I think, that he can motivate us to live better and not bitter in the face of persecution by making this simple statement. The end of all things is near. So I'm going to deviate just a little bit. I'm not going to stay completely in our focal passage, and we're going to look at some things tonight. But I hope as a result of what we're going to talk about tonight... We will do exactly what Peter is trying to motivate us to do. Peter is trying to motivate us. Live better and not bitter. Finish what you've started. Don't let this world steal from you the privilege that you have to live as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So take your Bibles with me tonight and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then I'm going to ask you to also turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the first passage we're going to read. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I'm going to listen for just a second. As you flip there, I'm going to listen to make sure we're there. I'm going to, I'm going to have you read along with me. I encourage you to bring your Bibles to be able to do that. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we know that Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, a group of young believers. And they're struggling with what he's addressing in this issue here is what happens to a person when they die. In, in the Jewish faith, we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believe in a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees do not. That's why they are so sad, you see. They did not believe that there was going to be a bodily resurrection. And so he's addressing this for some of their questions. First Thessalonians chapter 4 in verse 13. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren. So he's talking to Christians. King James Version says, we don't want you to be ignorant, right? So we've kind of cleaned that up just a little bit. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, about Christians that have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, how important is that for us to believe? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, I think we're kind of now getting into Romans chapter 10, aren't we? If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, a person confesses, resulting in salvation. So this is what Paul is talking about. Those of us that have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. For if we believe, if we're saved because Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him Based on this fact of salvation, understand, just like you have confessed Christ as your Lord, understand that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and let's read another excerpt where Paul is dealing with the exact same issue, the exact same topic. Now he's writing to the Christians at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. This is what he says. Again, he's writing to Christians. Now, I say this, brethren, this isn't applicable to non-Christians. This is applicable to those that have confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed. In other words, when this event that I'm talking to you about happens, not everybody's going to be dead. There's going to be some that are going to be alive. There's some that's going to be dead. But everybody is going to be changed. And this changing is going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up 
in victory. So in these two passages, Paul is describing the same exact event, an event that's on the prophetic calendar, and he's talking about the rapture of Christians out of this world. This, this rapture is an event that will take place at the commencement of the seven years of tribulation. So we've got this rapture that's going to take place. And in this passage in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians here, Paul talks about this last trumpet. This isn't the trumpets that we find in Revelation. This is the last trumpet. If you're a dispensationalist, this would be the trumpet that says the church age is over. Now we're moving into the next phase on the prophetic calendar. This is the last trumpet that the church will hear. The rest of the trumpets that are going to be sounded in the book of Revelation, that's what those here on this earth are going to be here. The Christians are going to be caught up and be out of here. So this is the last trumpet that Christians are going to hear. And so this rapture is the event that will bring all Christians... Those that had died prior to the rapture, whose souls are in heaven, but their bodies are left in the grave. And those Christians that are still here alive on this earth, this is the moment where they're going to be caught up together and they're going to be present in heaven with Jesus Christ. The rapture is different from the second coming. You have to differentiate that in scripture as you're reading through that. It's grossly different. The rapture is taking the church out. The second coming, that's what the, that John talks to us about in Revelation chapter 19. Turn to Revelation chapter 19 and let's read about this second coming and see how drastically different that it is. Paul wrote to us about the rapture and what it's going to look like and what's going to happen. And now in Revelation chapter 19, speaking about the second coming under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes these words in chapter 19, verse 11. He said, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, And he will rule them with the rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this event, the second coming of Christ, this is happening after the seven years of tribulation. This is when Christ will return and he will establish his millennial kingdom here on earth. And that's different than what we just read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, Paul in those verses is concentrating on the action of, nowhere in the Bible do we find the word rapture, but the action of being raptured out. That's what Paul is describing for us in these two passages of Scripture. So as we read Scripture in light of making sure we're keeping things in order and we're keeping things in the right progression, and we were real careful of that when we did the study of the Revelation several years ago, what we realize is that when the rapture takes place, then that begins this seven years of tribulation. And immediately when those, if it happened right now, those of us that are alive in Christ, we're going to be caught up in a twinkling of the eye and our perishable must put on imperishable. 
Those that have died and gone before us, whose spirit is in heaven, their bodies are going to be caught up, and that perishable body is going to be caught up with imperishable, that mortal with immortal, and we're all going to be caught up together, and we're going to be in the presence of Christ. And the first event that we're going to participate in when we get to heaven is known as the judgment seat of Christ. Down the road, after the seven years and after the millennial kingdom, down here, we're going to have the white, great white throne judgment. But we as Christians, when we get to heaven initially, we're going to participate in the judgment seat of Christ. I tell you that because in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, when Peter says, the end of all things is near, I believe he's got this rapture in mind. He's got this moment that all of these Christians, because what is he trying to do? He's trying to motivate us to live better and not bitter. He's trying to motivate us to not give up. He's trying to motivate us, though you're being persecuted, though you're suffering, though you're going through difficulties, don't give up because the end is near. And when the end comes, there's something that's going to happen that you want to know about so that you'll be motivated to move forward. And that takes us to this idea of the judgment seat of Christ. And if there was anything present in the world today that should motivate us to live better and not bitter, it is the judgment seat of Christ. So tonight I want us to remind ourselves what this future event is all about so that we'll be motivated to accomplish what Peter's encouraging us to do. Listen to what Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 14. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 10. You might want to turn over there because we're going to stay in that passage for just a few moments. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. He says, Paul writing says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, again, there's many incentives in Scripture that should cause us to want to live better and not bitter. But this one right here, this one is what takes the cake, the judgment seat of God. In both these passages that we read uh, here in Romans chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we know what April the 15th is, right? What's April 15th? Tax day, right? We don't forget that. We know we're supposed to do. I read recently that uh, uh, it's expected that the IRS will audit 40 out of every 1,000 tax returns that come in. They've done statistical studies, and actually it's somewhere closer to probably 25 out of 1,000 tax returns that are offered this year will be audited. So you have a... What's 25 out of a thousand? How many percent is that? Two and a half percent, right? So you, this come, come April the 15th, when they go through all their process, you have a two and a half percent probability or possibility of being audited when you submit your taxes. But that's not the way it is at the judgment seat of Christ. 
It's not a 2.5%. It's not a 25%. It's not a 50% that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. In other words, he's going to audit you for what you did in this body after you confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in your heart God raised him from the dead. There is a 100% chance that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ and he's going to audit you to see what you did in this body with what he did for you on the cross. And, and, and we understand this because he says in this passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this word judgment seat, it comes from the Greek bima. And so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Bema seat. So if you go back to the, uh, if you go back to the, the Olympic Games, if you go back to Athens, uh, way back in the day, kind of the precursor to modern day Olympiads, what you find is that uh, in the Grecian Games, you would have these activities that would take place and there would be a judge that would sit on a seat that would oversee these games. He was watching for fouls. He was watching for good play. He was making sure things were done the way it was supposed to be. And at the end of the game, when it was all said and done, whoever it was that was the victor, they would step up to the Bema seat and the judge would then offer the victor the reward for what it was that he completed. And so that's the picture. That's the, that's the word. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit calls Paul to write for us here is that we are going to stand before the Bema seat. We're going to stand before, and I'm not trying to minimize, minimize, minimize this. I'm not trying to minimize this. We're going to stand before the referee. We're going to stand before the ultimate referee that understands how the game is supposed to be played as a Christian. What we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, how we're supposed to succeed, the things that will cause us to fail. And we're going to stand before him and he's going to judge us. He's going to evaluate us. He's going to look at us through the lens of not for salvation, but what did you do with that salvation? And I know that because of this word that's being used here. So the focus of the judgment seat is not our salvation. Rather, our service. The focus is not to get you into heaven or not. We know we're already in heaven, right? What happened prior to the judgment seat of Christ? The trumpet sound, the dead in Christ, they rose, but they didn't go up before, or we didn't go up before we, they were caught up before us, right? So those that were already in heaven, their bodies are caught up. Christians come up before them. Now we're in the presence of, we're already in heaven, so this judgment is to see, isn't to see whether or not we can have eternal life. It's simply to recompense us. It's to reward us. It's to judge us with what we did with this salvation. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done. Ladies, that's talking about you too. Amen. Whether what? Good or bad. So here's what I want to make sure that we get out of this. The judgment seat of Christ is an individual judgment. Just like we don't get saved based on the merits of someone else, we don't stand before God on the merits of someone else. It is an individual judgment. Each believer will personally stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, which means... If we're going to stand before Jesus Christ and he's the one on the Bema seat, we're not going to be judged by anybody else. 
In other words, if our, if, if our friends were the ones sitting there, they probably would not judge us to the degree that we ought to be judged. That they like us and they, they, they're, they're fond toward us. So they may not deal with everything that they need to deal with. Now, if our enemies was on the beam of seat, they would deal with everything to the extreme. They'd probably want to kick us out of heaven by the time it was all said and done, right? You and I are not on the beam of seat. If there's anybody that knows the good, the bad, the ugly, all those things about a person, it's us, right? But we're not always real truthful with ourselves, are we? Sometimes we rationalize why we do some things the way that we do. And Paul is teaching us it's going to be Jesus Christ is the one that's seated there on the Bema seat that we're going to stand before. And it's very simple from Scripture to understand why it is he. And one of the reasons is, is because he has been ordained to be the one that we stand before. Listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Acts 10, 42. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4, 8. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all. When he looked and he judged and he refereed, he saw those people that were just excited, just as excited about the return of Jesus Christ as Paul was. And how excited was Paul about the return of Jesus Christ? I'm ready to be offered up. For me, I'm ready to get out of here. But for your sake, it's better if I stay around here for a little bit longer. But even now, come Lord Jesus, right? That was his approach to everything. And he says for every person that as he looks, as he judges, as he evaluates, there's the same kind of treasure laid up for that person as there was from Paul. So what we understand is we're going to stand mano to mano, face to face, right before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And according to these passages that we've looked at, Jesus is going to judge us. And I am grateful it's Jesus that's going to be doing the judging. He's going to judge us truthfully. He's going to judge us honestly. He's going to judge us righteously. But man, what we can't miss in this is he's also going to judge us individually. And that thought at this moment, it's either a blessing or it is a burden. The idea that I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for what I did with my salvation, mano to mano, one-on-one, nobody but just he and I standing there, that's either something that's thrilling to us or that's something that's terrifying to us. And this is what Peter's trying to make sure that we understand. Whether it's a burden or a blessing, whether it's terrifying or whether it is terrific, It all has to do with what we did with what Jesus Christ did for us. Well, what did he do for us? First Peter chapter three and verse 18. Christ died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
And so we're going to stand before God and he is going to judge us individually for what we did with what he did for us on the cross. The second thing that we want to make sure that we understand about the judgment seat of Christ is that the judgment seat of Christ is an inclusive judgment. Unlike a, uh, unlike a, uh, a tax return where we have these deductions that we can count off, there aren't any deductions that we can take with our Christian faith. Well, Christ, I, uh, I loved you and I served you except in this one area, but that's a deduction on the form when I stand before you, right? No, there are no deductions. And so it's an all-inclusive, it's an encompassing judgment that's going to take place. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians today, they kind of live by this deduction model. They, they kind of live with this idea, well, yeah, I'm going to serve God. I'm just not going to serve him all of the time. I, I, I'm, going to, I, I'm going to attend church. I'm just not going to attend church every time the doors are open, right? Aren't y'all glad you're here on Wednesday night? Amen. I, I, I'm going to tithe. I'm just not going to tithe all the time. Or I, I'm, I'm going to use my spiritual gift, but I, I'm just going to kind of use it when it's the season that I want to use it, when it's convenient for me to do that. I'm not going to get caught into using those things all the time. And as a matter of fact, I'm not even going like to act like a Christian all of the time. I'm going to do it most of the time, but every now and then I get to take a little bit of a break. That's not the way that we should be looking at being fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so unfortunately today, many Christians act as if it doesn't matter if they do these things. And it doesn't matter when it comes to our salvation. Doesn't matter whether you attend church or not when it comes to your salvation. It does not matter whether you tithe or not when it comes to your salvation. It does not matter if you use your spiritual gift or not when it comes to your salvation, right? If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But man, does it matter when it comes to this idea of standing before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat and him evaluating with what you did with that salvation, And so notice with me, according to Scripture, I'm just going to highlight two of these for you tonight. Notice with me a couple of the things that we're going to be judged or will be judged that's in our life at the judgment seat. Let's start with how we speak. How we speak. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36 says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Everybody look at that verse really close. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. You remember in James chapter three, how James talks about the tongue. He he, he talks about the tongue being like this bit that controls this huge, powerful horse, right? Just this little, little metal bits inside this massive animal, but it's able to control it. He talks about how that the tongue is like a rudder of a ship. You've got this big Titanic ship. It's got this little rudder, relatively speaking, that's able to make that ship go anywhere that it needs or wants to go. And with that in mind, James writes in James chapter 3, with it talking about the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, 
These things ought not to be this way. In this passage of scripture, James says these words that we use, they can either bless or curse. And whichever way that you use them, you're going to be held accountable for those as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want you to think about this idea of the words that we use and just kind of maybe put it in perspective for us. I read recently and I'm just I'm not sure this is true and I'm not going to get into whether you're a woman or whether you're a man or how this all works out. I just read recently that in in, in an average person in an average day, the amount of words that they use could be typewritten into and it would cover about 20 typed pages. Now, you evaluate whether that's true of you. I'm not sure James, uh, that, 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 uh, that, that, that James was getting that specific on these things, you know, but you know whether or not you speak that much or not. So let's just say on average that's true, that the amount of words that we speak on a given day, if we typed it up, it would cover 20 pages. How many days are there in a month? 30 days, sometimes 31, sometimes 28, but we're going to use 30 as a number. So, so 20 pages times 30 days would be how many pages? 600. And who wants to sit down and read a 600-page book, right? We're going to divide that into 300. So, so in a month, you speak roughly two 300-page books. Now, if we do that for 12 months, right, that'd be 24 books times 12 months. How many would that be? What's the next slide? 24 books, right? Two 300-page books times 12 months, that'd be 24 books, right? Now, we're all dumb until we get to be about 18, right? So let's just assume that until we're 18, none of our, none of our words are recorded. And we know that's not true, but let's just assume that it is. And let's say we live to be the average of about 78 before we die. Don't put it up here yet. Do you know how many books that we're going to be accountable for that Jesus is going to sit there and flip through and hold us accountable for every word that we speak. Any idea how many books that might be in our lifetime? And the answer is 1,440 books. That's a huge library of words, is it not? Yet in this passage, it says, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Imagine standing before Christ and him going through 1400 books to see if there's any careless or inappropriate or words that you shouldn't have spoken. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Do you know how many Christians have to stand before him in that amount? He's got seven years, folks. You know what I'm saying? He's got plenty of time to be able to deal with this. He's, he's pretty smart. He's pretty fast. Imagine Jesus going through every word that we've spoken that's recorded in 1,440 books and giving or or asking us to give an account for those words that we have spoken. What we might find, it might sound a little bit like the guy that that got really frustrated with his assistant. He kept dictating letters uh, to her and she wasn't doing it the way that he wanted. He said, "Okay, I'm going to dictate the next letter that I dictate to you and you write up for me. If it's not exactly like I say it, then I'm going to fire you on the spot. And this is what the letter sounded like. Dear Mr. Smith, don't forget the E. He thinks he's an, uh, 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 he, he thinks it is, it, it is aristocratic, but his father was a nobody. With regard to your letter of, oh, look up the date. Why can't this fellow use a typewriter if he can't write readably? 
I quote you the following prices. Bill, what shall we soak this fellow Smith for the office supplies? 20, 30, 40, you say? Right. $40 for the office supplies you request. Awaiting your esteemed order, I am yours truly. Thank goodness that's done. Just, just careless, flippant, just off the cuff kind of words. We have to guard how we speak each day. Because we're going to be held accountable for those words. It has to be why the psalmist writes in Psalm 141 and verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. The judgment seat of Christ, and it's an inclusive judgment, which means that we will be judged for how we speak. The second one that I'll highlight for you is we'll also be judged how we serve. How we serve. First Corinthians chapter three and verse 13 says each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. As Christians, we've been enlisted to work for God. Not only have we been enlisted at the moment of our salvation to be living on mission, as we've been talking about, we have been equipped At the moment of our salvation, when the Holy Spirit takes residence inside of us, he also gives us a spiritual gift. And then we are expected to put that gift into service. Years ago, when Cromwell was the leader of England, they ran out of silver to be able to mint coins. And so they came to him and said, Cromwell, we don't have any more silver. The only silver that we find are the saints in the churches. He said, go melt those things down and put them in circulation. That's why sometimes we experience the persecution that we do is because we've gotten comfortable and we've gotten lax and we've gotten we've gotten callous to be out doing the things we're supposed to do. And sometimes when that heat comes upon us and that and that struggle begins to happen, we realize we need to get back out in circulation. We need to get back out doing the things that we've been called to do. And at the judgment seat, we're going to give an account for the service that we've given or why we did not serve. Now, in light of that, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 25. In light of that understanding, let's read the parable of the talents. Let's let's remind ourselves about what, what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his slaves, called his his workers and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground And hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would receive my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him. And give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Each servant was rewarded with what they did with what the master entrusted them to. Whatever that it was. They did something with it. They didn't just sit on it. They just didn't bury it and stick it into the ground. And so at the judgment seat, I believe this is helping us understand that we're going to give an account for our faithfulness to those talents Jesus has given us. So that begs for us to ask questions like, as believers, are we being faithful to God? Just in the simple things, are we being are we being faithful to the commitments that we've made? Are we being faithful to 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 read our Bibles? Are we being faithful to pray? Are we being faithful to to do the ministry that God has called us? Are are we are we acting on those things that that God laid hold of us for in the very first place to be doing? Are we acting on those things? Are we just taking those and dug a hole and buried them? We need to understand the end is near. And we don't talk about that a lot because that's the message that the disciples preached from the very beginning. They preached in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And now that's been 2,000 years and we sound kind of foolish to be talking about Jesus is coming soon. I mean, he hadn't come in 2,000 years. Why are we going to be out there? We're going we're to go get a sandwich board and put on there and say Jesus is coming soon and walk around and be called one of those fanatics? No, let's just concentrate in the here and now. But in the here and now, life begins to happen and we don't stay so committed to the things that we know we ought to be doing for God. Pastor, I want to use my talents, but I've got this going on and that going on and that going on and this happening. And I just don't ever. And then we become bitter instead of better. And in that bitterness, our mouths begin to run. And every one of those words are being recorded and we're going to be held accountable for that, as well as did we serve with the gifts that God had given us to give? And Peter's saying, I don't want you to stand mano to mano before Jesus Christ, not being everything that you possibly could be. Let me motivate you. Let me, let me encourage you. The end is near. We're, we're going to stand before the judgment. So choose to live better and not bitter. Look at verse seven. The end of all things is near in light of what I've told you so far. Therefore, as a result of that, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. 
As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, it, uh, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And according to Peter tonight, that's how that we can live better and not bitter. But as this sermon series asks the question or makes the statement, you must decide. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for giving us this time tonight to come together to be able to open your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to do that. And we pray that we'll leave here tonight not merely just hearing it, but putting it into practice. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.